Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Matthew and all you have spoken to us through this gospel so far as you've read it together. Lord, I pray you would speak once more to our hearts and minds, reveal your truth, lead us in the way everlasting. And Lord, I pray that this sermon would have an impact on our lives, Lord God. I pray that um, this would be a moment of you revealing areas of our life where we need to submit to you and follow your leadership and honour your kingship and worship you with all that we are. Come, Holy Spirit, move powerfully amongst us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's it's good to be back. It's good to be back gathering once more. It's good to be uh, having played music in our midst again for the first time in a long time as well. Um, and it's also good to be back in the Gospel of Matthew, back in our Matthew sermon series. And I want to remind you of the journey we've come on as we've gone through Matthew's Gospel together. So you need to think back all the way to Christmas 2019. Feels like a long time ago. A lot has happened since then. The world has been utterly transformed. But when we first began reading Matthew's Gospel over Christmas 2019, we read Matthew 1-3 to and we read Jesus' genealogy at the start of Matthew and we saw in that genealogy that Jesus is the Davidic king, the Messiah, the the descendant of King David. And then there's angelic announcements. Gabriel speaks to Joseph in a dream and reveals that Jesus Christ, the baby to be born, will be a saviour. And then the wise men come to honour Christ and they respect him and worship him as king. They find out that Jesus is a ruler to be born in Bethlehem according to the prophecies of the Old Testament. And then we we picked up our sermon series again at the beginning of um, 2020, and John the Baptist comes preaching. And John the Baptist preaches, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus Christ enters, enters into his ministry following John And he goes into the wilderness. The first thing Jesus Jesus gets baptised, and he goes into the wilderness, and there he defeats Satan. Satan tempts him, and Jesus rebukes him, quoting words from Scripture, and Jesus triumphs over Satan. The king arrives and, and immediately triumphs over his enemy, Satan, in the wilderness. And then, from Matthew chapter 5 through to Matthew chapter 7, the king preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus sits down on the mount and he reveals the, the manifesto, if you will, of his kingdom. As king, he says, this is what my citizens will be like. This is what the kingdom will be like. It will be a kingdom of blissful happiness, but it will also be a kingdom of obedience. And we need to follow the pattern of kingdom life that Jesus preaches about in the Sermon on the Mount. Then a few weeks ago, we began reading Matthew chapter 8 together. And Matthew chapter 8 is a series of amazing miracles where Jesus reveals his awesome power and authority. I don't know whether you're following the the flow of this book. It's about Jesus as king. It's about Jesus as Messiah. It's about Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom life. And now Matthew chapter 8 is about Jesus the king revealing his authority by mighty miracles. So in verses 1 to 17, Jesus heals the leper. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, all revealing that he has authority to heal, that illness and disease obey his commands. 
Then in verse, verses 23 to 27, Dyer preached on this a couple of weeks back, Jesus calms the wind and the waves, revealing that he has authority over nature. The wind and the waves obey his very voice. And this morning, we're going to read Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. And once again, we're going to see Jesus' awesome authority revealed in these verses. So um, the words should appear on the screen behind me. Um, and yes, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read Matthew 8, 28 to 34. And when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gedarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This story is all about Jesus' awesome authority. Even the demons are subject to the command of Jesus Christ. When he says go, the demons are cast out into the pigs. And so we see in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. He has authority over the wind of the waves. He has authority even over the demons. John Calvin puts it like this, the whole of Satan's kingdom is subject to the authority of Christ. The whole of Satan's kingdom is subject to the authority of Christ. We will begin with um, this first point, which is this. We believe in spiritual powers. We believe in the existence of angels here in Christchurch Fairham. We believe in Satan, the evil enemy of God, our adversary, the accuser, the one who is called the prince of demons. And we believe in spiritual servants of Satan called demons. Every Bible-believing Christian must believe in these things. In our Western culture, these things seem strange to us and difficult to us. And and I believe that there are probably many Christians who are are starting to throw out these spiritual ideas, who say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe in demons. I don't really believe in angels. I don't really believe in Satan. Because it sounds weird to the world. People outside of the church who don't have the Bible, who don't believe that the Bible is God's word, this sounds strange to them. But if you are a Bible-believing Christian... You must believe in these things. Otherwise you call God a liar by saying his word is not true. For a start, 
This is the first of five exorcisms that Jesus will perform in Matthew's Gospel alone. Jesus, when he walked the earth, was confronted by demons and he performed exorcisms, casting them out. And demons are spoken about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We believe in spiritual powers. Now, I do not intend this morning to give you a thorough biblical theology of spiritual powers across the Bible, but I will make a book recommendation. Um, This book is called Satan Cast Out. It's a biblical theology of demonology, and it is very interesting. It's a fascinating book. It's biblical. It's balanced. And one of the things I love about it is it speaks a lot about, it shares stories of missionaries going into places where they, they are spiritually more in tune with what's going on, but not in a good way in the sense that they visit witch doctors and things like that, and they open themselves up to all these spiritual powers that are in the world. So he tells stories from modern day life of demons that have been cast out by missionaries. And the thing I really love about this book is that it's so balanced. It talks about demons existing and the fact that as Christians we need to be aware of spiritual activity. We need to be aware of the activity of Satan and the way he tries to accuse us and tempt us and lead us astray. But he also speaks so plainly about God's authority, God's victory over evil spiritual powers. The fact that Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection defeated Satan. And so all authority and power belong to Jesus Christ. And so I just wanted to bring you three things that this book says. I'm opening up the topic. Let's discuss it outside of this, outside of this room if you want to ask questions. But I just want to bring you three things this book says, um, about, which are biblical ideas um, about demons. The first thing um, I want to rem- remind you of, I guess, is a true believer in Jesus Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and therefore cannot be possessed by a demon. The Holy Spirit resides within you. A demon cannot possess you if you are a Christian who has true faith in Jesus Christ. But Christians can be influenced by Satan and by demons in very unhelpful ways. And so we need to be aware of their their tactics and their strategies. A second thing I want to bring you from this book is that demons execute God's plan in spite of themselves. So they seek, demons seek to oppose God, they seek to act evilly in the world, and yet even in doing their, working evilly, God, who is king over all of them, they seem to serve God's purposes even as they rebel against God, which is an amazing thing to think about. So there are stories in the Bible of demons working and God using that situation for good and for his own purposes. So demons execute God's plan even in spite of themselves. And then the third thing, and the most important thing that I want to remind you of this morning about demons is, in Christ, our victorious Redeemer, we can face the devil and his dark angels fearlessly. We need not fear demons, for Christ has defeated them. Christ is our supreme Redeemer. He has given us the Holy Spirit. We have power to overcome these powers that are working in the world. So we do not need to fear them, for Christ already has the victory. And that is clearly portrayed in this chapter, Matthew chapter 8. In this chapter, we rejoice for Jesus has authority even over demons. And Matthew emphasizes this idea in several ways in Matthew chapter 8. So I want to pick apart this passage and talk about the way Jesus' awesome authority is revealed. The first way Matthew highlights Jesus' authority is in comparison to Mark and Luke. 
So this story is also told in Mark's Gospel and also told in Luke's Gospel. But the stories are very, very different in Mark and Luke. Because Mark and Luke make this a story about conversion. If you read Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, they only tell the story of one man who's possessed by a legion of demons, who is, who is um, healed by Jesus. And what Mark and Luke do is they tell the story of this conversation between Jesus and this demon-possessed man, and then Jesus casts out the demons into a herd of pigs that run down into the lake. And then the demon-possessed man who's been freed comes to Jesus and says, take me with you, I want to go with you and follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, actually, stay here. I want you to be my witness in the Decapolis. I want you to be my witness on this side of the Sea of Galilee. I want you to go into these different towns and regions and preach the gospel. And so in Mark and Luke, the story is a story of conversion. A demon-possessed man becomes an evangelist for Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story of transformation. But Matthew, in a sense, doesn't care about that conversion story. He strips away all those details. He tells the story of two men. So I think what happened is two men were freed from demon possession. One man is converted to Christianity and becomes evangelist. So Mark and Luke focus in on the one man. But Matthew doesn't care about the conversion of the one man. Matthew just wants to shout at us about the authority of Jesus Christ. And so he talks about both men and he strips away all the detail about the conversion of this demon possessed man and just focus on the awesome authority of Christ. That's the first way Matthew focuses our attention on just how powerful Jesus is. Now, with your Bibles open in front of you or looking closely at the screen, let's consider this passage. Let's consider the words of God in Matthew chapter 8. And I want us to consider first the fierceness of the two men described. It says in verse 28, two demon-possessed men met, uh, met Jesus coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. These two demon-possessed men are ferocious and, humanly speaking, terrifying, scary. Imagine these crazy men running about the tombs, strong and powerful, so scary and ferocious and fierce that no one dares go visit the tombs. It may be it may be people have relatives buried in these tombs. No one dared go visit those tombs for they were terrified of these two men. But Jesus, heroic and brave, arrives on the shore completely unfazed. No one else dare pass through the area of the tombs, but Jesus Christ does. And I'm not sure whether I'm reading too much into this fact or not, but I can't help reading this first part of the story and thinking about Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. No one could pass through death. No one could pass through the tomb. No one could pass through the grave. Death was a fierce enemy, and every single person in human history History avoids death as much as they can. People are scared of death. They fear death. There's a ferociousness and a fierceness about death that no human could overcome. But Jesus Christ, born into the world, born on the earth, came to die. He bravely went where no person dared go. He entered the tomb and prevailed over death. 
the fierce enemy of death, was defeated. He emerged victorious. He rose from the grave. He defeated our enemy to open the way for others to pass through the grave into eternal life. Now, as I say, I don't know whether I'm reading too much into the story, but the same thing happens here, doesn't it? Jesus frees, like, heals these two demon-possessed men so that once again people can go into this region of the tombs. They can visit this region. Jesus makes a way where no one else could. So firstly, consider just how fierce these demons were described in Matthew chapter 8. But second, consider how these fierce demons... Are, rejoic- uh, are reduced, sorry, reduced to crying, begging wimps in the presence of Jesus Christ. Did you see that in the passage? Verse 29, Jesus arrives on the shore and the, de- and the demon-possessed men come to him and cry out. They're in desperation. They're crying out to Jesus. And then verse 31, the demons begged him. These demons don't appear very fierce in the story, do they? They appear like wimps. They appear, they are, the demons are terrified of Jesus Christ. Think of a school playground and the biggest kid in year seven, you know, the bully in year seven, going around bossing about the other smaller kids in year seven, you know, thinking he's a big man, thinking he's powerful. No, everyone's scared of the year seven bully. The year sevens I'm talking about. The year sevens are all scared of the year seven bully. They dare not go near him in case he steals their lunch money until one kid says to his older brother in year 11, do you want to sort him out for me? And then the big, the biggest guy in year 11, the, you know, the rugby captain or, or whatever sport you like, the rugby captain comes and, and gives this year 7 bully a bit of a shove and says, stand down, stop bullying the other year 7. Suddenly the year 7 bully is reduced to being terrified in the presence of the year 11 rugby captain. That's what's going on in this story. Everyone's scared of the demon-possessed men because they're so fierce, but then Jesus comes and the demons are reduced to crying, begging wimps. You know, you can imagine the biggest kid in year seven maybe wetting himself as the year 11 kind of threatens him a little bit. That's what's going on here. The demon-possessed men are desperate. They're crying, they're begging, they're terrified. These fierce demons in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of a far superior power, are reduced to being wimps. Consider thirdly the inevitability of the demon's defeat. Have a look in verse 29, where the demons say that the demon possessed men say to Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? It's interesting, isn't it? The demons immediately recognize who Jesus is. And and one I think again, one of the points that um, is made in this book is that demons have a correct theology but they don't have a correct love towards Jesus Christ. They, they hate Jesus. They hate God. They, they know all the things. They know all the facts. Their theology is spot on, but their heart is not right towards God. And, and I would hate it if there was someone in this church who was the same, who had great theology, knew all the stuff, but didn't love God and follow him and serve him and worship him. We don't, we don't preach biblically just so you've got the facts in your head. We preach so that you would love Christ and worship him and follow him. So the, de- the demons say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to dement, uh, torment us before the time? 
Now, that's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? What are the demons speaking about? Have you come here to torment us before the time? It seems that the demons know even that there is a time when Jesus truly will torment demons and they will be defeated. The demons here are speaking about the lake of fire to come when Satan and his demons and all who rebel God will be be thrown into the lake of fire and tormented in hell. The demons know that there is a time coming when they will be defeated. But they're surprised to see Jesus because they think this is before the time. This isn't the right time. Jesus, if you come here to torment us now, even though we know you're going to come to torment us in the future, but you're coming now. And so the demons were already defeated. They already knew there was a time when Jesus, the Son of God, would torment them. They're simply waiting for that moment, making the most of life between now and then. That must be a very sad existence for demons, really, knowing they are defeated, knowing Jesus is coming back to torment them and just trying to make the most of what will happen. And so that speaks of Jesus' authority and power, doesn't it? That there is a future victory of Christ, a future torment of demons in Jesus Christ. Consider fourthly this. Even the demons' request to enter the pigs ultimately serves God's purpose. Even the demons' request to enter the pigs ultimately serves God's purpose. You know, the herd herd of pigs rushing down the steep bank and drowning in the lake is a really bizarre episode in history, isn't it? It's one of those stories that you read for the first time maybe as a Christian in the Bible and you go, why? What's going on there? Um, And one of the things that's going on there is this. Matthew's primary audience are Jews. Matthew's primary audience are Jews who believe that pork is an unclean meat to eat. And so they would very much oppose and dislike the the keeping of the rearing of pigs in this town. Now, in the region that Jesus has come into, it was a Greek-dominated region, but there probably were Jews in this region as well, living and helping look after the pigs. And so these, these Jews were doing things that were unclean, that was wrong. And so as the herd of pigs rushes down the slope into the sea, what's happening is is a moment of idolatry, a moment of disobedience amongst the Jews. A a moment of uncleanness is being destroyed. Do you see that? You could also talk about the wealth that the pigs brought. And one of the reasons the people in the city want to get rid of Jesus is because they probably lost a lot of money when this herd of pigs ran into the sea. And so there's even the idolatry of money going on here as well. The demons request to go into the pigs and the pigs rushing down the slope and then drowning in the water is a moment of God achieving his purposes through the demon's request. So yes, it's quite bizarre and quite interesting, but it speaks to us once again of just how much authority Jesus has over demons. Consider fifthly, in verse 33, the herd's men fleeing. They see the fierce demons crying and begging. They see Jesus command the demons with just a word. They see the pigs rush into the sea and the herdsmen flee. They are terrified. This story is a scary story. Everything in this story, the way Matthew tells it, is designed to speak to us about how intimidating, how authoritative, how powerful Jesus Christ 
is. And if you're not, and if the first time I read that story, you just went, oh, that's a nice story. You didn't get it. You didn't understand it. What you, you should have read that story and gone, whoa, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is mighty. Jesus is You might even be thinking, Jesus is scary in this passage. That's the picture that Matthew's trying to present. He stripped away all the detail of Mark and Luke in order to portray to us an awesomely powerful one in Jesus Christ. I wonder whether you've ever even thought of Jesus as terrifying. Is that, is that a word you associate with Jesus Christ? Now, there's good reasons why we don't consider Jesus terrifying, because of his love for us, because of his death on the cross for us, because of his resurrection from the dead. But I just want to challenge the way we think about Jesus, because we often think of him as our brother and our close friend, and those things are right. But do we also think of him as this awesome, authoritative, powerful king? Because we should do if we believe God's word in scripture. Now the question is, how should we respond to such a one as this? How should we respond to Jesus Christ described in Matthew chapter 8? The city in verse 34 give us one option. They beg Jesus to leave their region. The herdsmen flee and come tell the people in the city all that's happened and the city hear about Jesus and then they come and they meet Jesus and they see him and they think, this guy's got to go. This guy is even more scary than the two fierce demon-possessed men who were wandering about the tombs. And we dared not go into the tombs when they were around. And this man's even scary. We've got to get rid of him. They beg Jesus to leave. Did you notice that the demons beg Jesus and then the city beg Jesus? The, the, the city are, are acting like the demons in the way they respond to Jesus Christ. They've also, as I've mentioned, lost a significant source of income because of all the pigs that they've lost. They were frightened of the demon-possessed men, and Jesus has just absolutely dominated those demons. And so he is even more to be feared. That's what's happening in the hearts of these people in the city. So one option, one option in light of just how powerful Jesus is, is to beg him to leave and leave you alone. You know, I think a lot of non-Christians quite subtly and subconsciously think like this. They want nothing to do with Christianity. They want nothing to do with the church. They want nothing to do with the Bible. They want nothing to do with Jesus because they're comfortable and satisfied with their own lives and they don't want the disruption of Jesus Christ. Jesus has arrived in this region and he's, he's disrupted. He, he's caused disruption. The pigs have been destroyed. And I think on a, on a subconscious level, some non-Christians fear Jesus in the same way. Leave my life alone. I don't want Christianity to be true because it, it means I need to change what I do in my life. Have you ever spoken to someone a bit like that? I'm not going to investigate Christianity. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm just going to reject it without even thinking about it. Ultimately, that's subconsciously a reaction of fear. I don't want my little comfortable life to be disrupted by one as powerful as Jesus Christ. And so if you're watching online or you're here in the room and you've never read the Bible, you've ne- or, you've, or maybe you're online and you've never been to church, or you've never asked the question, is Christianity true? Is it because you're scared it might be true? Now, I'm deliberately trying to provoke you. <laughs> 
because my experience, I want to provoke you, I want to provoke you into action, because my experience is when people genuinely start investigating Christianity, when they start reading the Bible and seeking Christ, my experience is they often find Christianity to be true. And it's just that fear, it's just that laziness, it's just that reticence holding people back to start the investigation that's keeping them from finding a message of hope, a message of joy, a message of love, a message of glory that we believe in Christianity. And and so if you are watching online from home and you've never asked that question, you never started that investigation into the truth of Christianity, please do. There's something glorious waiting for you to discover. And so the answer is obviously no. We shouldn't act like this city in the in the Gadarenes. I don't know how to say that word. There we go. We shouldn't act like this city. There's only one wise way to respond to someone with the power of Jesus described in Matthew chapter 8. The phrase, if you can't beat them, join them. You can't beat Jesus Christ. He has all power and all authority. And so the only wise way to respond to this power of Jesus in Matthew 8 is to join him, follow him, declare him to be your king, submit to his authority. And that's what conversion to Christianity really is. It's it's a moment of one day living your own life, going your own way and ignoring Jesus, even rejecting him and rebelling against him. And then the next saying, actually, the way I'm doing life isn't working. And there's one with all power and all authority. I'm going to go and join him. Look how powerful and awesome he is. He's glorious. He's amazing. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him. And that's repentance. Repentance is turning from one way of life to another way of life. It's, it's turning from being your own king and your own lord and ultimately ending up in destruction and hell and turning and following Jesus, the true king of glory and love and power and authority who commands sickness and disease, who speaks to the winds of the waves and they obey his command, who speaks to one word, just one word to the demons, go, and they are cast out into the pigs. Let each of us this morning join with Christ. Follow him. Declare him to be king. Obey and submit to his authority. This is the message of Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has such awesome, terrifying power and authority. Turn and follow him. Don't beg him to leave, but draw near to him and receive his love and his forgiveness. I want to finish by speaking to you Christians, church, I want to speak to you, and I want to urge you to apply this teaching of Jesus' awesome authority to your life. Don't Let's just not listen to this sermon and go, oh, that was nice. Duncan got excited this morning, didn't he? Let's, not, let's, let's respond. Let's change our lives based on the awesome power and authority of Jesus described in this sermon. Because my suspicion is most of us kind of know in our heads that Jesus is all-powerful and that he has great authority and that he can do these things. But that truth isn't radically shaping and transforming our lives. That's my suspicion. I know sometimes I'm guilty of that. Knowing the things but not living the life. And I want us to be Christians who know the things, love it in our hearts, and living the life. And so I want to ask you two questions to challenge you this morning. Do you think often of Jesus as your Lord, Master, and King who directs and instructs the way you live? 
Do you think often of Jesus as your Lord, Master and King who directs and instructs the way you live? My perception is that we relate to God as a loving Father. We think of Jesus often as Saviour and Rescuer and Redeemer. We think of Jesus as brother and friend. And all those things are true. I don't want to take away from it. I want us to think often about God as a loving Father. I want to think us to think often of Jesus as Saviour and brother and friend. But I also want us to add to that understanding of who Jesus is, this Lord, Master, King element. And the fact both are true is amazing. It's amazing that God is our loving Father and Jesus is our kind brother and saviour, but he's also Lord and Master because when you approach Jesus as Lord and Master, you're not just approaching a cold-hearted Master who's just going to shout instructions and bark orders at you. You're approaching a kind-hearted Master who loves you, who died on the cross for you, who wants to do all things for your good. And so you come to him and say, Lord, Master, what would you have me do today? And Jesus in love gives you the instructions and directions and tells you where to go and what to do. But I, I, just want to, I just want to challenge us today. Do we come to Jesus with those kind of conversations? Jesus, you are my Lord. Jesus, you are my master. What is your, what is your role for me today? What are your instructions to me today? How can I obey you? How can I serve you? Are we coming with that humility? Because if we're just coming with the, oh, I love God as Father, and I love him as Savior, and I love him as a Redeemer, but I'm just going to go about my life and do whatever I want. We haven't got it. We haven't got who Jesus is. We haven't understood how much authority he has. We need to come to God. I love you, Heavenly Father. Jesus, you rescued me. Thank you. You're my Savior. You're my brother. You're my friend. I love that. But you're also my Lord. And I will submit to you. I will bow to you today. I will do whatever you ask me to do. If you say go, I will go. If you say stay, I will stay. If you say take a bold, ridiculous step and share the gospel with my friends in a crazy way, I will do it. For you are my loving king. You are the Lord of all. You have all supreme authority. And I love you and you love me. Whatever you say, I will do. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ? Whatever you say, I will do. The second question I want to ask you this morning Does Jesus' authority give you boldness in evangelism? If you jump right to the end of Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 28, the very end of the Gospel, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and he appears before the disciples and this is what Jesus says to his disciples. All authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You say the command to go and make disciples, the command to be evangelists, is is prefaced with all authority has been given to me. And when Jesus says that, he's not speaking empty words. He's speaking to the disciples. He's saying, you know, you saw me heal the leper. You saw me heal diseases. You saw me command the wind and the waves. You saw me even command demons and they fled. When I say all authority has been given to me, when Jesus says that, he's not speaking empty words. He's speaking about something the disciples have experienced and seen with their own eyes. And Jesus would say the same to each of us this morning. Do you know that all authority has been given to Jesus Christ? Nothing is outside of his control. He has all authority. The wind and the waves, he speaks but a word and they come. The, the leper says, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretches out a hand and says, be clean, and the leprosy goes. He says, go to the demons, and they're forced into a herd of pigs. 
Christians should be bold in evangelism in the knowledge of Jesus' awesome authority. So this week, I want to challenge us. Let Jesus' victory over the demon-possessed men or the demons in Matthew 8 propel us into sharing the gospel with others. Propel us into bold evangelism for the kingdom of God. For Jesus Christ has supreme authority over all. Jesus Christ has supreme authority over all. Let us follow him. Let us submit to him. Let us serve him and love him now and forever. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to stand, actually, as I pray. Let's, let's stand. I think there needs to be a moment in your heart, right now before God, saying, you have all authority, Jesus. Whatever you say, I will do. Let's have that moment before God in a moment of quiet, where we really do recognize just how powerful Jesus is and say, I'm, I'm following him. I'm, I'm doing what he says. Let's just quietly respond and then I will pray for us. Lord, you say in your word that the fear of the Lord is is the beginning of wisdom. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we've become so familiar with the good news of Christianity and your love that we forget just how powerful and mighty and and in some sense terrifying you truly are. We know that we're welcomed into your arms, that you will greet us and hug us and love us forever, but we, we sometimes we lose that reverence and that awe of your power and might. Lord, I pray that Matthew chapter 8 and this story of the way you drove the legion of demons into a herd of pigs would remind us once again just how powerful you are, that all authority belongs to you. And we pray that that would not just be a truth that fills our head, but a truth that transforms our lives. Grant us boldness Make us bold evangelists for your name, knowing that all authority has been given to you. And give us this holy attitude of waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, here I am. I will do whatever you command me to do. And I thank you that we can say those words knowing that you're a good father, knowing you're a good Lord, knowing that you're a loving saviour. We say those words not out of of fear, not out of having to, to serve you in order to be saved, but rather knowing your love, we say, we submit to you. We love your power and your authority. Would you guide us and direct our steps, instruct us in the way we should go, Heavenly Father, that we might serve you and love you always. In Jesus' name. Amen.